Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work for social justice. Each week, we bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Damien, you are up this week, my friend. Uh, what do you bring to the table today? That is my name. Yep. Um, that's an inside joke. Um, so I am up this week because I have brought an interview and really a conversation to the mm-hmm. table for us today. Uh, spoiler alert, so good. Uh, this interview is in a piece um, that's part of a brand new online magazine that recently launched called Hammer and Hope. Um, And I know we're both just so excited about this magazine and what's to come for it. Um, Hammer and Hope, uh, again, is this new magazine project that, in their words, is focused on black politics, black culture, and the collective movement toward freedom, mm-hmm. which is just uh, an incredible mission. It was founded by Jen Parker and Kianga Yamato-Taylor, uh, so I really have zero doubts that this thing is going to be a phenomenal resource to us, to all of us. Um, the piece we read for today is called After the Uprising, What is to be Done? And it is a discussion between Derricka Purnell, Oliofemi Taiwo and Kianga Yamada Taylor, with sort of Kianga sort of serving as a facilitator throughout most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and these three folks, um, we certainly have just so much respect for. We've talked yeah. about all of them on the podcast in some way, shape, or form. I mean, Derricka Purnell is a lawyer, author, organizer who wrote the great book Becoming Abolitionists. Uh, Oliofemi Femi Taiwo is a professor. A philosophy who wrote the incredible book Elite Capture, which we read last year, right, uh, mm-hmm. for the podcast. Uh, and Kianga Yamato Taylor is an author, an activist, and, and professor at Northwestern University. Uh, and the book she edited, uh, How We Got Free, is another one we read for the podcast. Yep. So just really incredible folks to have this opportunity to engage with. And um, in this interview, this their discussion really is all about the legacy of the protests and uprising that took place back in the summer of 2020 and the growing threats from the right to sort of our collective freedom and really where we can go from here in terms of building movements and building strategies, I think, to get us to where we want to go and where we need to be. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there was, this was just powerful. This was incredible, right? I mean, I, I enjoyed it so much. I'm so excited about our conversation today. So I'm going to kick it to you, man. Where do you want to start? I, like, <laughs> the one thing that I will yeah. say is that there's there was so much in this. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot in this. Um, it was a really great conversation to be able to kind of just sit in on. Like, yes. we, we got to be <laughs> audience to, to the conversation, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of insight into um, sort of the current moments in, in movement and how those align with history. Um, there's this really, I think, sober analysis of our current reality of right-wing power grabs that have been happening for decades yes Um, there's some hopefulness that we have that that we have people in movement um, who are dedicated to and on the side of collective liberation Um, they dive into uh, how legal strategy doesn't mean much without collective movement um, and a mass of people and direct action and there's a lot of great moments in here that i hope uh 
it makes me hope that this is a running conversation between these three folks in this magazine. So like each each issue, maybe they tackle a different conversation or something. Um, yeah. So that would, I, that's my hope. Anyway, that would be yeah. great. That mm-hmm. would be great if we could continue to hear from them and and they do it in this format because yeah, it was it was an incredible conversation. And I like what you said, sober analysis, right? Because yeah. I think they didn't hold any punches, right? They no. really sort of dived in. They really sort of took a critical look at what is happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and really sort of what we need to do, all of us need to do, not just folks to engage in organizing, really all of us need to do to sort of, um, again, embrace the world we want to see and fight for that. Um, yeah, I think there was, for me, I, I, I was struck by the fact that there was just so much wisdom um, here and in and, and the insights from these folks in this conversation related to you know, the current state of organizing and, and movements, right? And and certainly in the idea of where we go from here. Mm-hmm. Um, so Derica talked about how pivotal the uprising and all of the protests that took place in 2020 were to making abolition and the idea of defunding the police, this these real tangible possible things um, in the minds of people and the conversations that all of us were having, right? Yeah. Um, these ideas, as she said, were were met with a whole lot more curiosity in, in the mainstream uh, than they had ever been before, which, you know, we lived through that. We we're living through it, right? But was incredible to see and to experience, right? And to feel energized by right that folks were sort of on board and having those conversations but one of the things i appreciated was both derica and olufeme took the conversation and their analysis a step further and 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 really called out how while that's important and good it's also critically important for organizers and and organizations to be able to harness that energy right and Mm -hmm. and use it alongside and in support of their larger and broader strategic work um, and their efforts um, to make the change that we're fighting for happen, right? Yeah. Um, and then another piece of that that stood out was like, it's also important that we're also bringing everyday people, like the public along in this work and in, in the political education of it all, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's sort of necessary um, in all of this. So um, I think they made it clear that that's, how um, that's like the only way we're going to be successful in bringing about the change that we want to see, bringing about and seeing our freedom dreams become realized, right? Yep. Um, that that was a really sort of powerful exchange between those two that stood out to me. Yeah, I really I really like that um, that exchange. I think that um, the the incredible number of people that got went into the streets yes um i think is huge and right like what derica talks about is that um having those massive people out in the street is great and And. where's their political home yes like how are how how are they connecting with political homes um and how are we creating places where they can have that home where they learn about what could be yes um all that's so important, right? Yeah. To be happening at the same time. And connected to this yeah. is uh, Olufemi kind of names this um, the way that this has happened most frequently in the past okay. um, is unions. And yes. so he says, quote, to me, this is why unions are so crucial to making any of this work, not because they are magic or because every member of every union has perfect politics, but because unions are one example of an organization with strategic options that many other kinds of organizations don't have. 
they have a group of people who can decide in democratic processes what the group's demands are. Politicians don't get to pick their favorite protest sign and just decide what the protest is really about, mm. as we've seen post-2020. Yes. And so it's it's so key, and it's related to what I said about, um, about Derricka and her point that people need these political homes, um, and those homes are, are key to our ability to create change, to take the the um, passion to take the um, sort of harness the energy of a, a mass amount of people yes. into strategy into change. Yeah. Um, and so we need those we need those spaces. We need those places where people um, can be absorbed um, and welcomed and shifted into sort of consistent strategic action in some form or fashion. Especially um, like you have to build those spaces when it's not like when we're not in those those uh hot moments where everybody's right out in the street right you have to do that beforehand to be able to then absorb those people when they're out in the street that's a really um, good point that's and i think that's point. that's a part of their conversation too right yes. like i'm not i'm yes i'm not uh creating that idea for the first time ever yes um but yeah and, and i think the 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 other point is i think that's really important there is that you know, the politicians picking their favorite protest sign. Mm. Um, I think if people aren't coalesced around a strategy, then the narrative of, of the point of all of this gets away from the people. Yes. Um, and so we need folks in spaces where they're working together for movement because individuals can be shifted out of the picture too quickly. Yes. Um, and we can, um, it, the, the narratives move so quickly that, that you know, um, or as we've seen in the past, they're murdered. Um, so there's all wow. these ways that yeah. prominent individuals are then removed from these situations um, that we have to be together in bigger sort of movement and bigger um, coalitions uh, than, than a mass of individuals, right? Like there's, there's a difference there that's important. Absolutely. Well, and I, I, I love the connections between what I said and what you said there mm -hmm. and this idea of, uh, I think their point and you amplified it is this idea that you have to bring people along, right? You have to be constantly yeah. doing this work. It cannot be, um, you know, the plane is going down and you're putting the mask on your face first, right? It cannot be only when, there's murder by the police, right? Like that we're yeah. called to action. It has to be this ongoing political education that they called it, right? Like you have to bring folks along. You have to sort of talk to them about and meet them where they're at. And we've talked about that with previous pieces that we've engaged with for the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. um, to then be able to allow folks to be at the ready um, and to be able to then engage in the spaces that they're in with the people in their life to help bring them along too, right? So um, yeah, there's so much... There's so much work that has to happen. <laughs> it's a, it's yep. it's really never ending, right? But it's in all of it, every step of it is so important. And I love mm -hmm. that they sort of talk about that and, and name that here. Um, you know, there is a, another person in this conversation, Kiangi Mata Taylor. She yeah. said a lot of incredibly profound things um, in this piece. So I wanted to name one of them. She talked about how she's teaching this course uh, on the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And how part of the learning in that course is about how the law doesn't matter if people aren't on the ground making its enforcement a reality. Yep. 
Like I was like right there. <laughs> we read this online, so I couldn't highlight it. But I was like, if I was highlighting, I would be highlighting that. The law doesn't matter if people aren't on the ground making its enforcement a reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I I love that. It's, that's so true. It's so important to recognize. Um, certainly not just how it played out, and we we know we have plenty of examples of how it played that plays out and played out in the civil rights movement. But it yeah. certainly applies now. But sort of towards the end of her thoughts about this, she said this incredible thing, and I'm just going to read it because it was so good. She said, quote, protests create the conditions so that people are able to see the contradictions that usually exist beneath the surface. Uh, And perhaps most importantly is that it imbues a sense of confidence among those of us who who are horrified about what the state is doing because it can absolutely seem overwhelming if you're just sitting with your newspaper or watching the news and seeing people do blatantly illegal things. This is supposed to be a country based on religious freedom, right? That is one of the core tenets in the Bill of Rights, freedom of religious association. There is no state-sanctioned religion. You're free to practice whatever your religion is. You know this, but if there's no one doing anything to protect it, it feels like maybe I'm not so sure about what I know. Maybe no one cares. Or maybe this is just the fate of our society. But when you see hundreds and then thousands of people protesting, it affirms that you know what you know. And it is a way to encourage resistance. It is a way for people to build confidence. It is a way of demonstrating that we are, we are many. And so I feel like that combination of things is a part of what we need now. I completely hadn't thought about it until you had said it. (laughs) She's talking in response here to someone. Uh, But this whole idea that we're just going to fight this out in the courts isn't enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's talking there about the the Muslim ban and the the protests around that, too. Um, Just to add a little bit of context Context. around the discussion around religious freedom, it's specifically about the Muslim ban and thousands of people showing up at airports and, and stuff. Absolutely. Um, so like just there's so much, you know, in that that I just really appreciate in this idea of like seeing yourself as one of many. Right. And and not, you know, feeling powerless. Right. Or not doing uh, not being able to do anything in the midst of right. what is being done to us. Right. And what is being done around us by the powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I just and knowing that we collectively deserve better. Yeah. Um, I, I I just so appreciate it. Yeah, and I think um, so. I think Kanga here is responding to Derek. Derica, yes. Um, and Derek was talking about um, this critique of uh, the in the wake of the Muslim ban and a few other things that were happening with the Trump administration, like 2016, 2017, uh, I guess 2017, 2018, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, a lot of the uh, things that were happening that people saw as resistance were. Donations to the ACLU, to the Legal Defense Fund, um, which is fine uh, and not necessarily the only thing that we yeah. can do. And it, it, you know, uh, in your what you pulled out, she talks about like it, it feels deflating, um, and it feels like you can't be part of the the right. Like if I'm not a lawyer, like well, how can, can I, I even join yeah. in and help? Absolutely. And so we have to find the other ways. Um, and so. Um, at, at a different point, 
in this same conversation, King actually says that uh, King makes a particular point that the legal strategy relies on the passivity of those who are most impacted by these decisions. Because you're telling people to wait for the courts to solve this question, wait for the law to change. And meanwhile, life is hard on the ground. Mm. I think those are powerful points. Um, so as they say in the article, people in the streets change the conditions locally. Yes. Right? Like you mentioned that earlier, um, if the the law isn't being enforced equally, um, then it doesn't matter what the law says. Right. Right? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I want to repeat what you said earlier. Protests create the conditions so that people are able to see the contradictions that usually exist beneath the surface. Yes. So... You know, Derricka points out that, that we need a legal strategy. You have to have that to, to fight through things. Uh, but you also need to be able to consider the ways that people in the streets in the streets change the conversation um, that can be had. So like defund and abolition being able to enter the conversation in a different way and enter the mainstream in an entirely different way yeah, uh, yes. based on 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and one of the things you said that I love is this, like, this idea and her point around you know, life is hard for people on the ground, right? Like if you're just, if you just have a, a uh, what do you call that? Sort of a one-pronged approach, right? You're just yeah. trying to solve this issue in the courts. Like th th we know the court system takes forever, right? To mm -hmm. make any change happen, if it even does, right? But in the meantime, people are just suffering, right? right. People are just, right? So we have to, you have to call attention and do work um, in other places and spaces, um, and so that's so much of their so much of their point in their conversation around that was really important for all of us to hear and understand. Right. As we mm -hmm. do this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, if it's all right, I think this is a good point to maybe shift our conversation a little bit. Yep. Talk about application. Right. Like, how are we going to apply all that we've talked about today, all that we learned in this incredible piece uh, to our to our daily lives? Um I think there was, I've said this many times, I think there was a lot of profound thinking and ideas and suggestions and really sort of, you know, calls for action that the three of them provided to us in this conversation. And so there's so much that all of us can take from this and, and mm -hmm. use, you know, as we continue to think about and work to engage and, and fight for real change. Um, I, th I think one of the biggest pieces of application that we have to and we must consider moving forward is something that Derricka said in this conversation, actually. Um, and it was this, she said, we need mass resistance by everyday people. So the need for activists and organizers and organizations and, and abolitionists and scholars and lawyers, right? And, and, and all those folks is obviously necessary and important. Um, and the work that they do is incredibly important. But I think her point is that it's going to take all of us as well, right? Like, you know, she talked about how everyday people need to go to the libraries where books are being banned. Right. Uh, and how we need everyday people to show up and join pro protests that are happening. Um, you know, I think we also need everyday people to be having these kinds of conversations on the regular. Right. And in the in the places that they inhabit, they find themselves right to bring people on board, bring their family on board, um, really sort of bring people into this idea and, and working to uh, hopefully one day achieve our, our freedom dreams. So. That's my takeaway from all of this. Uh, yeah. What about you? Um, well, I think that's all important. Um, I really, I really like that. Um, my application is um, 
something that Olufemi says. Okay. Um, he says, quote, the right wing is ahead of us by decades, not just by dollars. Yeah. And he says that he says this in the wake of talking about how the strategy for packing the courts with right wing ideologues has been consistently implemented by Republicans over the last few decades. Yes. Um, where we're now seeing how that strategy has paid off on the Supreme Court mm -hmm. with the current conservative majority there and the decisions that they're making um, and the ways that they're making those decisions. Um, but it also points to the way that a strategy just based on the law won't work. Right. Um, because the courts are packed with right-wing ideologues. So we have to have these political homes and we have to have these organizations. We have to have spaces where we can learn about how the world could be and find people uh, we can work with to create that world. Uh, because in some places, the courts are going to be an impediment um, in ways that maybe they wouldn't have been if yes. this hadn't been a decades long strategy from the right wing. Absolutely. Right. And if we had just sort of paid attention, <laughs> ran the race alongside them. We wouldn't be in the situation that we are, but uh, he's absolutely right. Uh, decades, right? And the yeah. impact of that, I think we're going to feel for a very long time, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, lifelong appointments. Lifelong so. appointments for that, for, that, for that court in particular. So um, I, I think that's some brilliant application too, my friend. Um, all right, let's talk about homework. What do we want to do when we leave this wonderful table tonight? I'm going to be honest. I feel like my homework is maybe a little bit selfish, but <laughs> I think it's also aligned with, you know, our uh, fervent belief that learning and unlearning work is so important. So I'm going to say it's fine that it's a little selfish. Um, I want to and I want us to read more of the great work of these three incredible folks who had this conversation. Um, so Derricka Purnell's book, Becoming Abolitionist, the uh, subtitle of that is Police, Protests, and the Pursuit of Freedom, uh, really needs to get moved up our reading wish list. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Oliafemi Taiwo's other book that was published last year, uh, very prolific writer here, mm -hmm. uh, was called Reconsidering Reparations. And so I want to make sure that's on our list. And then Kiangi Yamada Taylor's book from hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation is a book that I think we recently both just got not too long ago um, and, and need to read. So um, I'm not really an overachiever anymore. I feel like the pandemic kind of took that from me. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you are paying attention, I think I've just given us three books to read. So You sure have. Yeah. Well, I'm going to add a couple more. Um, oh, good. Well, one more, I guess. I, I think okay. that's great homework. Uh, I read, I did read Derek's book a little oh, while a while you back. Did. You did, um, but it's a great one to revisit um, because, yeah, I think it's just great. Um, yes, and the King's book looks great too. Um, and I've had it for a while, and mm -hmm. we just got an updated edition. So yes. I think that's a great thing to revisit. And I think Olufemi actually published three books last year. <laughs> Um, so it might be four for the list. Okay. Um, he also published in September 2022 against decolonization, uh, taking African agency seriously. Wow. Um, and against is stylized and like crossed out on the cover. Okay. Um, so it's it's both against but also like for decolonization in the sense that um, quote decolonization has lost its way. Yes. Um, wow. So lots. Lots there. Lots to read. Um, but so my homework is to read, finish reading this whole magazine issue because uh, there's a lot of great stuff in here. 
uh, including about uh, ending evictions, like just yeah. full stop. Yep. Uh, an article from Olufemi about how we can understand the world and uh, another one about how revolution is a work of art. Yes. Uh, and there's more yes. uh, too. But th- those were the, the ones that um, sort of jumped out at me from the um, table of contents, yep. so to speak. Um, so I just want to read it and I want to absorb as much as I can from this because I um, really think I- I'm really excited for this. Yes. Um, magazine to exist uh, and to continue to exist so absolutely talk about it feels really good i can't tell you how difficult it was to just choose the one piece to right. bring but i also knew there was no way that we could <laughs> we could talk about this in a in a 30 minute <laughs> yeah. episode if we if i had chose more than one and i wanted us to have enough time to sort of really tackle this brilliant conversation that these three folks had. And yeah, yeah. so, um, oh yeah, we're definitely revisiting this book. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. This uh, magazine, I can't yeah. wait. Um, all right, my friend, you're up next time. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? Well, um, I'm bringing stuff, some stuff from the Dream Defenders. Okay. Uh, so this is an organization. It's it's one that I admire. Yes. Um, they've been around for more than 10 years. Uh, they grew out of the response to Trayvon Martin's murder. Um they also got some great shout outs in this interview and slash discussion uh, we just read. Uh, and they're in Florida putting up a fight against DeSantis's consistent pushes toward fascism. Yes. Um, so I'm bringing their freedom papers. Uh, and this is how they describe it on their website. Okay. What's the future we are fighting for? The freedom papers illustrates our vision for a world that serves the everyday needs of its people. The one we all deserve. The Freedom Papers is our new North Star. Mm. So there's seven of them. Uh, They tackle poverty, prisons and policing, movement, uh, democracy, and more. Uh, You can find them on dreamdefenders.org to dig in along with us. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I can't Mm -hmm. wait. I know they are uh, an incredible organization doing really important work, especially down there uh, where... Mr. DeSantis is. So um, mm-hmm. I'm super excited to read the Freedom Papers. That's yeah. awesome. Very good. Thanks for finding it. Mm-hmm. All right, so folks, with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what I'm going to ask you to do here, but in case you have forgot, uh, forgotten, uh, please follow, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with everyone you know, follow us on the socials, uh, and sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we've got going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. And we'll talk to you next week.